We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 171. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we discuss archaeological radiography with James Elliott. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Here's a little biography of our guest before we start the show. James Elliott is a lecturer in diagnostic radiography at Canterbury Christ Church University in the United Kingdom and a qualified archaeologist. He has a master's in forensic radiography and enjoys researching and the use of x-rays in archaeology with his research website, paleoimaging.com. And you can find that link in the show notes. On to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going? It's going all right. Not a whole lot new to report this time. Just spent a lot of time over the last week or so doing a fair amount of GIS work for an NSF grant proposal that I'm getting written into. But um, but aside from that, I don't think I have anything really to chat about today. How, how are you doing? Where are you now? <laughs> well, we are actually, and our, our guests can appreciate this, we are in Lake Havasu City, Arizona at an RVing event, our first ever RVing rally, so to speak, where they're, they're doing talks and all kinds of stuff. And it's been really... Really, really fun because from a tech standpoint, you know this because you worked with us over the summer. We had solar panels installed on the roof and lithium batteries. Well, there's different sections of RVers here and we are down in the solar section where you're not allowed to run your generator or your engine. You have to have good power management or a lot of solar energy. And we've been doing pretty good. We're on day five or six, I think. And I think we got here Saturday and we haven't run our generator once, but we've had to have some pretty strict <laughs> power management practices to be able to do that. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been fun. I'm just glad to say that I have a number of, you know, high amp batteries in order to run some things. Cause we charge those up when we do have good battery power and then like overnight and stuff, we can keep our phones on, on those other batteries that we use in the field. So mm-hmm. it's been interesting. Yeah. We got a few more days to go too. So, and I said, our guest would be able to appreciate this because about five miles away from me is the London bridge, the London bridge that was built, <laughs> the London bridge that was built in the, in the, I think it was the early, uh, like 1830s or something like that. And then, and they tore down the 600 year old medieval bridge to build that bridge because it wasn't adequate anymore. And then, in the mid uh, 20th century, the London City Council was like, well, we need a new bridge because cars are a thing now. And we didn't really plan on that when we built this in the 1800s. So we need to structurally just rebuild this whole entire thing. And one of the city council people said, why don't we sell it? <laughs> like, you're crazy. Who's going to buy that? Well, an American businessman from Missouri was crazy enough to buy it. He spent two and a half million dollars on the London Bridge and they marked every stone so they could put it back together. They dismantled the London Bridge. They cut off about six to eight inches of the facing on it to basically refresh the the granite and then shipped it over to Long Beach through the Panama Canal, trucked it over to Arizona and basically put it around. They faced uh, an iron girder bridge. So it's a really sturdy bridge, but it's got the London Bridge blocks surrounding it. And it's a, it's a super cool little area down there crossing a man-made channel that they made basically just to put this bridge over. (laughs) It's, it's really interesting seeing that. So that was pretty fun. So leading into that, let me introduce our guest, James Elliott, who is, as I mentioned in the introduction, a lecturer in diagnostic radiography. James, welcome to the show. 
Hi there. This is great to be with you guys. I've been listening for a long time. Uh, so thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we well, really coming. appreciate it. Yeah. And this is especially cool because most of the time we get people on the show that are, well, I hate to put it bluntly, but archaeologists, right, that are using some sort of technology to do something. And, you know, your background isn't an education is is not really in archaeology originally right so let's talk about how you got into uh archaeology how you got interested in that and then how that led to radiography and then we'll we'll talk about that later Sure, sure. Well, I hate to break it to you, but actually, I did start out in archaeology. I did, uh, did a degree <laughs> in archaeology uh, at uh, Newcastle University quite some time ago. Qualified back mm-hmm. in two thousand and one. Oh, that's so. right. Yeah, uh, uh, two thousand four. Sorry, and then yeah, I had real difficulties getting employment. So I oh, go figure. At, uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, I looked at what <laughs> other jobs there are out there, and I looked in, into healthcare. And in healthcare at that time in the UK, they were offering free pass for the uh, tuition fees for radiography. So I thought Hmm. to myself, you know what, this is probably a good stable job. I went into that, started working down in the south of England. But I always had that interest in archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with, with radiography, you know, we do use x-rays in archaeology, don't we? So I yeah. started putting the two together. And eventually I did a, a master's in forensic radiography, learning about how to use imaging to identify the deceased or look at uh, objects, non-destructive testing. And then eventually the long winding road that is life, I found myself working at Canterbury Christchurch University. And now uh, I'm really getting to my fore to research uh, how x-rays or radiography is used in archaeology. So in this podcast, we, of course, like to unpack any terminology that uh, ourselves and possibly the listeners are not aware of. So let's talk about radiography because that's what this whole podcast is going to be about. Can you explain to us what that is and, and what it's used for typically? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's my day job at the moment, <laughs> Teach, <laughs> teaching how people to become radiographers. They're the people off, come off the street and they do three years and then they, they get their degree and they start uh, uh, providing medical care uh, in, uh, in our NHS. You don't have three years. You've got three minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> fine, 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 fine. Uh, yeah, so radiography is the use of medical imaging in healthcare. And although there's also radiotherapy uh, with therapeutic radiographers, uh, unlike me, I'm diagnostic radiographer. In the UK, a, rod- a radiographer is a protected title, meaning you can't call yourself one without doing a degree first and being registered. Um, so hmm. this involves all sorts of different types of technologies, not just X-ray. You've got uh, CT scans and MRI and nuclear medicine and ultrasound. And gotcha. my area of uh, specialism in the NHS and the National Health Service is actually nuclear medicines where you inject patients with radiation and then you kind of measure that with a, a gamma camera to find out about them, normally about how an organ works. So it's a big area. It's a big topic. Nice, nice. So basically anything you can use to look inside the human body without cutting them open. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> they say that uh, they say that like 99% of the population will have imaging at some point during their life. I'm just wondering who that 1% is because everyone yeah. at some point in their life will have some form of imaging and come into, into radiology department. Yeah, you would think. I think I had an x-ray last year. So, okay. Well, how did that all swing back around into uh, into archaeology then? Yeah, interesting because 
I wanted to do archaeology, but it was more of a hobby. Uh, and then when I came into uni and had that uh, the obligation to do to do uh, research, um, I, I thought let's let's start collaborating with the archaeology guys. And then we went to, uh, together to do teaching for the undergrads to show how X-rays are being used, and we started doing projects together. And that's that's really where. I've gone now sort of looking at uh, how x-rays are used in archaeology with bones, with metalwork and ceramics. Hmm. Interesting. On, your, uh, on the bio that you sent us, uh, you have a link to your website, paleoimaging.com. And I went there and it, you've got a lot of interesting information there, including a class. So we'll definitely put a link in our show notes for that. But you also have a description on the webpage about the use of the term paleoimaging. And I was hoping that you could explain for us and for the listeners what you mean by paleoimaging and then how this uh, radiography works within that, that overall term. Yeah, paleoimaging, I've, I've stolen from Beckett and Conlog. They, they did the old mummy roadshow, didn't they? Which is a show that was on National Geographic. They went all around um, America scanning mummies and X-raying mummies and stuff. And they they wrote a book, and uh, in that book it says paleoimaging has been defined as the capture of images of cultural remains and artifacts. Where uh, for me, it's a multitude of different imaging technologies are used non-destructively to gain information. And yeah, on on uh, the website, I've got a little bit that says uh, what is paleoimaging. And it says that there are different types of imaging you can use. You can use X-rays or you can use computer tomography, which is essentially taking an X-ray round in a circle and then using computing power to reconstruct images. Or you can use MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging. But you've also got fluoroscopy, and it's very basic. It, you know, paleo imaging can include just using a camera. A camera, aerial photography, ground penetrating radar. There's there's a vast array of different things that are out there which I would consider to be within uh, the, the bracket, the research fields of paleoimaging. Hmm. So broadly speaking, then paleoimaging could encompass any kind of imaging techniques within archaeology, and uh, I guess to a greater or lesser extent, all of us archaeologists, regardless of our specialty or almost all of us, are doing some form of paleoimaging. But again, back to circle back to uh, what you're doing, you're especially specializing in x-rays, both as a practitioner of archaeopaleoimaging and also then as a teacher of. Could you give us the, uh, the quick elevator speech of what you're doing teaching paleoimaging, what you're doing about teaching radiography to other archaeologists or for archaeological purposes? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So, X-rays have many benefits, uh, which I tell to the undergrad students, and I help out with some of the uh, PhD students. It's non-destructive, non-invasive. You know, when you use X-rays, you're not going to destroy the item, and you don't have to shove anything inside it. So it's non-invasive. There have been studies that looked into the effect of X-rays with DNA, ancient DNA, and to to get to the stage where you're going to be destroying ancient DNA, you've got to be doing something incredible, like this is the Hulk kind of style of gamma rays, X-rays, getting through that item. So X-rays, just general X-rays, like your chest X-ray you had, Chris, that would not destroy the ancient DNA within some bones. So Mm. you have that ability to explore the inner the uh, structure, the inner structure of an item, 
but there's different way they had to get your head around it an x-ray is, is a 2d representation of a 3d object so that's where the radiographic science comes in okay so am i right then because you anticipated one of the questions that i asked uh, that i put on our show notes for chris in medical applications we're worried about getting too many x-rays in a given year for example because of the cancer risk and what you're saying is that destroying the object or mummy or whatever you're looking at uh, that is non-living uh, we don't have any similar sorts of worries. You're not going to destroy that ancient DNA that we might want to extract otherwise. No, yeah. Even with this, like, a, 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 we do CT scans of mummies, don't we? I've done one quite recently on a, on a, a mummy head from Canterbury Museums and Galleries um, down nice. in Kent. Yeah, great fun. Yeah, I've got some pictures and there's some more stuff going on the <laughs> website soon. Even with our, our what I call a full fat version of that CT, the, the the smallest resolution, the highest amount of dose we can give, it's nowhere near, nowhere near the amounts you would need to give to to um, demonstrate damage to DNA. Uh, there's been a few studies on it. Fascinating. I've always wondered. So, but with living people, <laughs> uh, that's yeah. th- that's not the case. As a radiographist in the, in the UK, we would have to vet every X-ray request that comes through us to say yes, this is justified, and we are willing to do this for this patient uh, because people do ask for X-rays that are either unnecessary or undiagnostic. That leads me to a thought too, because anytime. You know, I'm a field archaeologist, and anytime we talk about some sort of technology, I'm always concerned with data collection and how we can best collect a piece of data or something like that in order to be able to study it in a certain way and not damage it for that future potential. So, are there any concerns with field archaeologists collecting certain things, having to collect them in a certain way, being careful of certain practices that would, I guess, decrease your ability to collect information from uh, some sort of radiographic method? Well, we have had quite a few requests to have soil blocks x-rayed, and I've done a a fair few. And there's a perception by some archaeologists that you can x-ray anything. And sure enough, with the powerful (laughs) enough machine, you could. But with the stuff I've got, I mean, it goes pretty high. We've got clinical equipment at Canterbury uh, Uni, and... Uh, that that gets through a lot of heavy heavy stuff, but um, mm-hmm. when you get to really heavy metals, you're going to struggle. You have to switch over to an industrial unit of some sort, which we don't have, but do exist. They are around. For the point of view of like, could you do anything wrong to an item? I think with the careful nature of any archaeologist apart from a spade through something, perhaps or a fork <laughs> through something, you can't do too wrong for it to be amenable. To get to mm-hmm. X-ray and get a good result, there's a there's a saying in radiography which says one view is one view too few, meaning that if you take an X-ray from one angle, you need to take another one from 90 degrees to, for it to mean anything, because you need to be able to see the anatomy. What the in this case it could be an object, it could be the internal structure from a different perspective to be able to, be able to really understand it. That answers the question I was thinking about because I didn't even think about x-raying like soil blocks or something like that and thinking, I guess, the more power you have, the deeper you can see or the more you can see through, I should say. But I was wondering, like, I mean, if you just have one image straight down into the soil, you're probably not even going to be able to tell what you're looking at unless you take an off-axis image and then you can compare those two and then start matching things up and say, well, here's this. Because you might you might see a dense object at 10 centimeters and a dense object at 30 centimeters, but in the x-ray, they might look like they're just in the same spot, right? Because of the, the, the nature of the two-dimensional representation. 
Yeah, that's true. And also, you have to think that in, in out in the field, the thing that you're going to be X-raying is going to be on top of a detector. So you can't, you couldn't literally have it pointing at the ground, then see into the ground, because you sure. need to have the film or whatever underneath it. But having said that, there are examples in literature about items being lifted as a block because they're so fragile that they need to be uh, imaged as they are. Especially there's Egyptian items that have been done like that, and then they've been. Mm. A micro excavator to get rid of all the soil and the x-ray or ct the ironic thing is that sometimes with some situations um, you might want to perform imaging to prove that whatever the item was was broken before you touched it <laughs> so, um, <laughs> there's i know yeah uh, again sort of uh, beckett and condog in one of their texts they, they say that uh they went to x-ray some old priests or something standing up there in in the church uh mummified priests and you know one way of saying that you know it wasn't me that broke them is you take an x-ray first <laughs> to, to has that permanent record and i think mm. that idea of permanent record really resounds with archaeologists because they you know mm-hmm. they like they like to document and that's one way of doing it Nice. Well, that is a good spot to take our first break, and we'll be back on the other side to talk more radiography with James Elliott. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on price and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 171. And we are talking with James Elliott all the way over in the UK about radiography and its use in archaeology. So... When we ended the last segment, we were talking about a few soil blocks and things like that. And you mentioned a piece of equipment that made me think every time I've had an x-ray, it's been like in a room with a big thing that is not going anywhere. And the technician goes in another room, puts on it. I'm wearing a lead jacket. So what are the 
field applications of any of this? Or are there field applications for some of this, these radiographic methods? Are there handheld devices or ways you can set something up that you can use this in the field? Or do you have to, you know, you mentioned getting dirt out from around from like a, like a mummy or sarcophagus or something like that, implying that, you know, perhaps this could be done in the field. Cause so let's, could you explain some of those techniques? Yeah, sure. There are, there are some pieces of equipment which are mobile or you might call them portable. Think about all mm-hmm. the other people who are, are vets, you know, the vets go out to the farms to do x-rays of um, mm. whatever animal that needs to be uh, done. So these portable equipments do exist. And other people have used either equipment used by the army. So it's rugged, it's able to mm-hmm. travel. In the past, in the distant past, you'd have chemical film. So you need to worry about, you know, the supplies of uh, either the, the, the film itself, the liquids that go with it, and then having a dark room always a bit of a challenge. Nowadays, we have digital radiography. And digital radiography, you can you use the same, like a, a, it's a film, but it's not a film. It's a digital film, which could be used over and over and over. You don't need to worry about resources, you know, the logistics of having films sent out to you. And you can, you can take, mm-hmm. take the fight, to, take the fight to them. You know, you can, you can take <laughs> your machine, you can go off there, you can do stuff, but these pieces of equipment are, are fairly expensive and m- most archaeological, well, at least um, commercial units won't be interested in that. And it falls down to maybe research, you know, universities who have it. And even then there's only certain circumstances you can use them, but some people do have them. There's a few places, people in, in the UK, you have this portable machine, which is standard practice in hospitals because we've got to go, we've got to, go to the wards. We've got to go up to ITU and take x-rays of very poorly people who come, come down mm. to the radiology department. So mm. they exist. So that is, okay. that is a very useful piece of equipment. The other thing is that we have dental x-ray machines and those you see in the dentist, you know, the ones that look like a gun, perhaps you look, they hold it to your, <laughs> to your face and take an x-ray of your, your back teeth, perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's ones that are wall mounted. So I'm, I'm talking about the ones that are handheld. There's machines called nomads, as it implies, you can, you can go wherever you want with them. And they've got a fairly sizable battery power. And there have been archaeological studies where they've used them in a novel way to look at bony anatomy, to identify pathologies in a very small scale and very accessible for, for researchers and other people. Hmm. God, I guess that, that just reminds me, dental technology, man, that is, it seems to be growing in leaps and bounds. I was at my dentist just last uh, December getting a crown and they used a, a device that they put into my mouth and I could hear it going tick, 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 and, and clicking off these video, these, these images really fast. And they were in real time taking images and processing on a screen that I could see 3D color photogrammetric images of my teeth. It was highly disturbing how accurate it was. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Technology moves on quickly. Oh man. So crazy. Paul, I think you may have had a question. Oh uh, no, I was just thinking that it's, uh, it's fascinating that uh, I hadn't even thought of portable x-ray machines as a potential tool in uh, in the archaeo- in the field archaeologist toolkit obviously expensive specialized but i was kind of curious about the the specialized because uh, again back to your your role as an educator what kind of training would be involved in teaching somebody how to use this kind of equipment archaeologically i'd say there's two types of training that you had to consider you had to consider the training of being safe with radiation because mm-hmm. the, the danger of radiation, all mm-hmm. radiation could cause cancer, and that's always a concern. Uh, so in the field, when you have 
an X-ray source which can, in theory, shoot anywhere. You could expose someone to radiation that they don't need, and that's obviously dangerous. It's all some you know it could be cumulative radiation which is bad, or say there's a, a risk called stochastic risk, which means any radiation could cause cancer. So that's one aspect. There's radiation protection to, to be considered, and the second thing is about the knowledge of how to take good x-rays, a bit like a photographer. There are mm-hmm. variables involved and uh, there are views, you know, radiographic projections of views that are optimal for certain types of anatomy. Or if you're not talking about anatomy, you're talking about an object, you've got to know how to, to manipulate the exposure factors evolved to gain the best possible image for that item. And with digital radiography, you have that blessed opportunity to take as many x-rays as you like because it's digital and you're not going to waste any film. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, then it's a bit of a risk, isn't it? (laughs) So I'm assuming that it's not just raw trial and error when you are – when you're – working with the different variables to, to get a good image. I'm assuming that there's a fair amount of expertise that goes into you in particular, uh, having done this in the past. What are some of the variables that we'd run into that somebody would have to learn? And uh, in the same way you use the, uh, the analogy to photography, one needs to know about ISO and, and aperture and, and shutter speed. Uh, what would be the kinds of variables that go into a good radiograph? I think you could use photography quite well as an analogy x-rays they have a strength so you will be you will be shooting those x-rays and some of them will be let's say weak and some of them be strong if you want to get through a very dense object you need to have strong x-rays and you need to control the quantity of x-rays so if you want to have lots and lots lots of x-rays to get through you'd need to expose for longer Uh, so the the strength would be the uh, the voltage of the tube and the quantity will be the tube current and those two variables some some of them you'll be pretty much standard for you can use clinical numbers you know clinical settings and you think yeah this is about a knee x-ray in the clinical environment for this piece of whatever i'm using i'll probably use that but there are other variables as well like the the distance the distance in between the object and the the detector or the film the distance between the object and then the the tube the x-ray tube and then the angle Mm. it is all sorts of things it is it is a it is a specialism and I think the more you get into a specialism, the more geeky you get, and any photographer <laughs> will probably be the same. <laughs> You've talked about objects and, and x-raying certain things, and you know we're talking in radiography in general. To be honest, when most people probably think of x-rays, they think of bones, right? I want to see bones. I want to see inside. What are some of the things that radiography, and I think more specifically x-rays, because it's very interesting to me, what are some of the things you can... I don't know, look at or look into using x-rays that we may not be thinking of. I think I can draw upon my experience with working with a lady called Dana Goodburn-Brown. Uh, she's a conservator in, in the Southeast. And she's, she's very, been very good to me. She's brought me lots of nice things to x-ray. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's great, isn't it? Once you say you've got an x-ray machine and you're willing to do that f- for them, they, they just flock around you. They really want to have stuff x-rayed. Nice. We've done br- uh, Bronze Age axes. The Bronze Age axes come from a hall. For the life of me, I can't remember the name of the horde. And that's really, really useful because we can look at the internal structure of that Bronze Age axe. Or there was, you know, a whole bunch of them. Bronze Age axes. We can see the size of the uh, the cavity in the, the inside, the way that it's been set, whether there's different ways that the, the bronze has set, um, and whether we can mimic it with some experimental archaeology in the future. We've also done 
Anglo-Saxon swords, whether they're sort of fragments or whether they're complete. That'd be, that'd be really good to see either the state of preservation or the state of decay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done Tudor corsets, so Tudor England corsets oh, wow. to see whether how they're constructed from the inside. And then a plethora of other weird and random items from, from a museum, from everyday items, just to see how are they made this is made in the, in the 18th in the victorian age what's inside them how, how do they work so that's the kind of stuff i've been doing i've done a lot of pots a lot of pots from the portable antiquity antiquity scheme in in the uk where they they want to find out is there any treasure inside so i can claim it as as a treasure this is you know the metal detectorists mm-hmm uh, mm. And I've, I haven't found any gold yet, <laughs> but they're all very nice. willing to come to me. They'll bring like a, either a bronze <laughs> urn or a ceramic urn or an X-ray inside, and hopefully see like nice round coin. But most of the time, it's just little jumped, jumbled up pieces of bone. You know, you're saying people bring you stuff to X-ray, <laughs> which is fantastic. It makes me think of a YouTube channel. There's a number of them, right? There's one called, I think it's called Will It Blend? Like they'll put an iPad in like an industrial blender or something like that. <laughs> there's there's one where I know there's a guy that's using like an industrial, like a press and he'll just crush stuff to what it's like completely flat. And that's just like, you just watch it because it's fascinating. I'm telling you, you got to have on part of your YouTube channel. I see it linked on your website here, but you need to have a whole series called What's Inside of It? <laughs> and just... <laughs> You don't even need to explain anything. (laughs) Will it (laughs) x-ray? Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, we've done like (laughs) shields and all sorts. You know, there's random little pieces of metal in in Britain. When you you dig dig down a couple of inches, you'll find loads of stuff. And some of it's metal. And then in the end of the day, um, the archaeologist sort of scratches his head and goes, I've got like 30 Mm -hmm. kilograms of metal. Do we need to keep any of it? And the museum goes, "Mm, I'm not sure. (laughs) You said shields. What would you see in like inside of like a shield? What can you even see? Like a wooden shield. I guess you could see nails or something, right? The the wooden part would be gone, but there there might be rivets or or Mm. there might be the boss. And to show the construction of that, you know, just wonderful. That's that's a very much industrial radiography kind of mindset away from the clinical mindset. But the opportunity to see that and – you don't often get that opportunity in my line of work, although it's becoming more more frequent now. As, as I say, people people know about me and they come to to meet me, and we X-ray stuff together. And I just really enjoy it. It's it's, it's a lot of fun. As the, my colleague Adelina uh, Tiwaka from Canterbury Archaeological Trust, she brings me loads of stuff. And she said, "I said to her, have you got any more interesting stuff to X-ray?" And <laughs> we X-ray together. And she says, "That is the point." You know, the magical point where you're the first person ever to see the inside of that item. Yeah. Right there and then, standing in that room. And she she said, that's for me. That's the point of magic. That's the little bit. No, that's great. (laughs) Nice. I want to get probably in segment three, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the projects you've worked on and some of the more interesting things that that you think you've, um, uh, some of the stuff you've worked with. But I'm curious, you know, as archaeologists, we always get the question, what's the coolest thing you've ever found? Or, you know, if they don't know what they're talking about, have you ever found any dinosaur bones? But in the vein of what's the coolest thing you've ever found, have you ever image something or analyzed a series of images and like as the picture resolves you're just like what the heck is that or something that was just completely unexpected or you know just 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of stuff that would just be like, like a doctor imaging somebody and saying, you know, why is there a telephone inside of your abdomen? That kind of thing. But <laughs> you, <laughs> you mean know. archaeological, not clinical. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can tell with all sorts of things. Like clinical, oh, no, no, no. We don't need that right now. This is a family channel. <laughs> um, okay. So the, the most exciting thing that I've, I've seen of late is, is taking initially just the x-rays of the ancient Egyptian mummified head from Canterbury museums and galleries. So they, ha- they have this head, which is, is unwrapped because you know about the Victorians. They love to have their unwrapping parties. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's one of those that's been collected in, in the uh, Victorian time, given to the museum eventually. We x-rayed it and inside, and this is also shown in the CT scans, which again, some videos I'll, I'll put on eventually. There's some very odd tubes being shoved uh, up the, um, the spinal canal. And... Hmm. Uh, also down something the left nostril, and they they kind of meet, almost meet in the middle, so shove right up. I mean, they they pushed out away some Jeez. anatomy out of the way, and and we think that I I think maybe they used it as some sort of stand, but it looks old, it looks brown, it looks it looks dated, and it looks I think maybe hmm. Victorian. I think that's why, and it looks so odd and so brown and old. We didn't see it initially until we did the imaging. Wow, that's crazy. I just I'm blown away by I'm blown away by that imaging like i don't know because there's not there's not any other way that you would even know something like that right because because people aren't just cutting some of this stuff open as a matter of course and in fact in a lot of cases i would think back to say native american remains that have been analyzed and in disputed fashion here in this country where i i'm not sure some sort of radiography would satisfy some Native American tribal concerns about invasive procedures and things like that. I'm not really sure how they would feel about that. It'd be interesting to have that discussion with some tribal groups, but I feel like that those sorts of techniques should be in more, I guess, wider usage because of their non-destructive nature. We're, we're relatively used to some non-destructive geophysical techniques, but when it comes to, you know, examining like the human body and some of the ethical concerns around that and ancestral remains and things like that, that we have, especially in this country, this seems like a, seems like it could be a game changer. Well, it is, and it has been, because in the past, we've had, uh, so I've just brought up an article uh, I read. It's, about, it's called the Standardized Protocol for Fo- uh, Radiographic and Photographic Documentation of Human Skeletons. And I can't pronounce the, the surname, Brulehide and Beck and Pelot, uh, Pelot, Pelot, mm-hmm. Pelot uh, probably a French way of saying that. And that's, a, that's a, uh, an article that's written uh, American, where they did systematic imaging, photographic, radiographic of remains, just as you say, native remains, uh, for so for for reburial. So they they captured it. They didn't think to themselves there is something on these bones. They're they're doing systematic imaging so that later on down the line they have the opportunity to examine it. And f- for these authors. That's what they proposed and what what they've used and what I've used as to base some of my research upon. Okay, nice. All right. Well, so much more we need to talk about, and we only have one more segment to do it in. So let's take our last break and come back and do that. We'll be back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 171. Today we're talking with James Elliott about the work he's doing with x-ray radiography of archaeological remains of various kinds. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, alluded to the, well, more than alluded to, you discussed a little bit about about this mummified head that you were x-raying. And I could see from your website and, uh, and publications that you've worked with other mummified remains and, uh, and other you know, human skeletal remains. That's something that I find very, very interesting. And I think a lot of people that have, you know, just passing acquaintances with archaeology kind of understand. We may have seen it in a National Geographic or on BBC or something where, um, where x-rays are being used on archaeological remains to, uh, to, to learn a little about the people themselves, you know, not just about the, the construction of, of an axe for, you know, to use your example before, but also about the lives of the individuals that we're looking at. I'm especially interested in what can be learned about pathologies. And I was wondering if you could, uh, if you could discuss that a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. With, with the mummies, and there's been a lot of people doing mummy scans, you can find out a lot about pathologies with an individual. The whole body scans have been done you know, with CT scans. You can you can see things like sclerosis, arthrosclerosis, so calcification of the of the arteries. You can look, you can see osteoarthritis. You can see pathologies like like cancer, and you can do, do all that by doing this three D scan. It's not technically three D, but we're going to call it three D for for simplicity. CT scans are great for when you you can't unwrap that mummy because the, Otherwise, it's a destructive process. But what about x-rays then? X-rays produce a, a 2D picture, and they won't be able to get rid of that, so that problem of overlapping structures. But I believe x-rays still have a place in the world. It's more accessible. People are generally going to get a hold of an x-ray machine more than a CT scanner. And you can see lots of different pathologies. You can assess for uh, lesions, which you know cancer lesions. You can assess for metabolic diseases. You can assess for congenital uh, deformations. And you can see something like um, Harris lines, which I believe, Paul, you're you know about? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't go so far to say I know about them, but I, I think that that's a very interesting <laughs> application because again, trying to understand how people live that uh, Harris lines for our listeners and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but they're, they're lines visible on long bones when somebody's growth uh, is interrupted typically by, um, by like malnutrition. And so we could look a little bit about a person's life history directly by examining their bones. Is that, uh, is that yeah, that's, more that's, or less accurate? Yeah, that's, that's right. And so Harris lines are interesting because it's not only sort of bad nutrition, but it could also be a point in time where they've had, uh, you know, been really, really very unwell. So where the, their body's got to the stage where they, they can't continue growing as normal, and then they do grow normal, and then you have that line, that deposition. Mm. So, and depending on how old you are, it depends on where that line is. So some people mm. even go as far as being able to create a formulae where you can work out what point in their life did they get this, this biological stress. 
Mm. And this is through through x-rays. A colleague of mine uh, did a study where she compared CT scans with x-rays for accuracy to see, well, if we had the opportunity, should we use CT scans or x-rays to look at, uh, to, to identify Harris lines? And CT had greater visualization of the bones. But in the end, they said, well, really, you can use x-rays, uh, but obviously you do two views. Like I said earlier on, you need to do two x-rays from 90 degree angles. And mm. so based upon that, I've done some research with, as I said, Adelina Tioaka from Canterbury Archaeological Trust, where we x-rayed the remains of 92 remains uh, to look at Harris lines. But I wanted to find out about what's the best way to do x-rays for bones. And she wanted to find out about the Harris line. <laughs> That's right. What other kinds of things can you learn about about people's uh, lives and deaths, presumably, uh, by looking at their bones? Can we tell things like age or sex or, well, I don't even know. <laughs> what, what could you find? Well, yeah, there are many things you can find out. For a lot of people, that aging someone can be down to sort of visual inspection. But when you get down to children, it sometimes get a bit tricky. So if you did x-rays of uh teeth or the mandible you can see unerupted teeth and then use aging methods of predictable mm, eruption mm -hmm. methods or um, dating of the teeth let's say getting my words mixed up uh, to see how old they could be and we did that for uh, the remains of saint ainsworth um one of the uh, anglo-saxon saints in kent uh, they had her remains but we're not sure how old she was so we did x-rays and sure enough her her wisdom tooth her you know her molar was not quite erupted that helped to age her you can also learn about the bone status from a perspective of density there's something called photodentrometry, where you can compare how dense the bone is in comparison to an item of known density to work out their bone mineral density. And this is a very old technique, harking back before we had uh, DEXA scans, um, hmm. um, which is the, the current gold standard. And then even beyond that, there's something called radiogrammetry, where we can look at the, the thickness, the cortical thickness of bone to, mm -hmm. uh, to assess for bone loss. So do two different things. Uh, photodentrometry for the density of the bone, so osteoporosis, osteopenia. And then we have uh, radiogrammetry for uh, uh, the loss of bone, uh, so determined by the, the thickness of uh, the, the cortices. Uh, and that's done with most, mostly uh, in modern practice, the carpal bones, the hand bones. But anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And presumably you could do this across uh, a number of individuals to get a look at a uh, population in a certain time or a certain place to see if there are common pathologies or patterns to their ages or uh, injuries and so on i guess yeah the, the, there's a guy called simon mays who's uh, an archaeologist in the uk he's done a lot of studies about cortical thickness and he's done it across uh, several populations he's, so that the data was there to look at it and then there's uh, another one called a lady called bernadette manifold and she did a study about photodentrometry for the skeletal remains of children and there is a data set there to compare against, but there's so many different variables involved that you have to be careful about comparing like for like. Bones that are in the ground, they can undergo leaching, you know, uh, chemical leaching where they lose mm. um, bone density. And of course, you've got all the whole variety of sort of taphonomic change where bones can be damaged. And if there's any bones with cancers where you increase density or, or let's say Paget's disease, uncontrolled 
at the disorganized bone growth, you're going to get really dense bones and it'll just throw your, mm. your whole hypothesis out the window. Mm. So there's, there's lots of things out there that can be identified or diagnosed or confirmed diagnosis with x-rays. Just on that note real quick, I was wondering, you know, when we think of clinical, clinical x-rays and bones that are inside a living human's body, those are, I guess, what I would refer to as wet bones as compared to bones you would find in the archaeological record, which would be probably for the most part dry bones unless they're, you know, not deceased all that long ago and and they've still got some, you know. Uh, some some wetness to them, for lack of a better way to say that. I don't know what the clinical way to say that is, but is there something that you either lose or gain with archaeological remains that are, say, dry versus your standard imaging? Yeah, they are different density because they have, they've lost their, their water content. So, yeah. so your imaging approach is different. So in that study I did with uh, medieval and, and some post-medieval bones from St. Albans, we did that survey of 92 different skeletons and we had to, to discover what was the best exposure values, that, that tube voltage, tube current, to be able to image them successfully. We found that it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what size the bone was, actually a 55 and 5, so 55 kV and 5 MAS produced the best kind of images for what we wanted. But there are discrepancies there between imaging systems. So yeah, there are differences. Okay. All right. Well, we are coming to the end of this podcast, but I would be remiss if we didn't mention, especially since we're going to be helping you promote this course here over the Archaeology Podcast Network, but you are a lecturer in diagnostic radiography at Canterbury Christ Church University in Kent, and that's not enough teaching for you. So instead, you decided to, or in addition to, <laughs> you decided to put together a course, an online course. Tell us about that online course and what, can, what somebody can learn from taking that course. Yeah, sure. So it, the title of the course is An Introduction to Paleoradiography. And paleoradiography is a term that is used in academia, but not greatly so. And it just sort of intertwines those two concepts, paleo meaning ancients, and then radiography meaning the use of x-rays to produce an image. And within this, the course, you'll be able to learn about the application of x-rays from a professional point of view with metalwork mm. with bones and ceramics to uh, to a lesser extent and uh, i've produced a a rich and and varied website training website to do this and it's been endorsed by the chartered institute for archaeologists in the uk so it is it's professional uh, professional training with uh, something to boost your cv is it doesn't cost you much it's 50 pounds and uh, i don't know what that equates no. to dollars or wherever you're <laughs> listing in the world uh, but that gains you um, six months access and as well as uh, a certificate sent out by email now the interesting thing is that um, I, I have actually uh, developed this course uh, alongside undergraduate archaeology students i invited 100 students from across the world to participate on this online course uh, on my website paleoimaging.com and they told me uh, the best way to present this information and to teach them. And the first uh, thing they said was, you, you've, you've included too much about radiography, which is unusual for a course called <laughs> An Introduction to Paleoradiography. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, they all moaned. Yeah. They said, you've got too much science in this. <laughs> you need more examples. So, yeah, I, I do. I, I heavily rely upon open access literature, which uh, demonstrates from the academic community the application of x 
phase uh, in there. Uh, it's divided into four sections, and you can study wherever and whenever you want on your phones, on your tablet, but ideally on a PC with a good screen and a pair of headsets to, to listen to me in the videos. I and mean, you can see the x-rays I take at Canterbury as well. Nice. Wonderful. Quick uh, question about that. Does the student in your class, do they have to have uh, access to an x-ray machine to be able to follow along? <laughs> no, <laughs> but it would be wonderful if they could post their, their pictures and say, look, James, look what I've done today. I'm like, wow, that'd be amazing. No, they don't need to have uh, an x-ray machine. They, they, they simply just need to have a PC with the internet and the ability to study for four hours, but over a six-month period. Uh, and that's all they need. Yeah. And it's based upon uh, my research and it's um well it's published research you can have a look at it uh, try before you buy let's say <laughs> uh, yeah. and then there's a, a little promo video that's available on the website as well nice well since you mentioned your research uh, in the last few minutes of this episode is there some research you've been working on lately that you're particularly proud of or is particularly interesting to you that you'd like to talk about yeah i, I kind of um mentioned it in passing already but yeah i did uh, uh did a, a study with uh, adelina we looked at um the potential for identifying harris lines she really wanted to uh, sort of x-ray do a skeletal survey for these 92 medieval post-medieval remains from saint albans in the uk so she could find out a which bones should we use to identify harris lines because everyone says let's all use tibia and i suppose there's a reason for that because when we looked at all of the bones we did what 426 bones in all all from from two views of so the front and the side and gosh did it take a while it, it took five days even with our digital x-ray equipment we found out that actually you know what the tibia are the best. The tibia, if you're going to do a study to look at <laughs> Harris lines and you had limited them to resources or time, go for the tibia. The other bones, humeri, radii, and, and the femur, you're not going to see it as much. And I use that experience as a reflective experience to find out what is the best way to x-ray bones if I needed to. And if I need to apply that to not only archaeology, but forensics and um, we decided that it was best to have a multidisciplinary team to have really diligent record taking and mm. uh, to, to work methodically to really work methodically and it, there's an open access piece of work which i've done which is called Radioku of Human Bones, a reflective account with recommendations for practice. It's open access. You can find it on my website, or I'm sure there'll be a link as well. Uh, to yeah. look at, so they did a, like a flow diagram to show how it worked. And there's a list of a bullet point of recommendations at the end. If you wanted to go out and, and do uh, x-rays of bones for archaeological research, for paleo radiography. Nice. One last question then about uh, a about the need or lack of a need for the researcher to have an x-ray machine themselves. <laughs> Clearly, you have a pipeline of people bringing you interesting uh, materials to x-ray. Uh, do you have recommendations for people who aren't located in Kent, uh, how they find somebody that can x-ray archaeological materials for them? I'd say before the COVID environment, I'd say go to any hospital and make friends with a radiographer or uh, however you turn in your country, because they have different different titles. But mm -hmm. with the COVID environment, it's been very, very difficult. Even organising to have that CT scan of the head at Maystone Hospital in Kent, mm -hmm. uh, we had to wait until COVID had more or less died down. God, I wish. 
Nice. And we had to do out of hours, yeah. make sure there's no in, no uh, no compromise to, to patient services, just so that we remember they don't cause a political storm. But for guys out there, I'd say, really, you want to either approach a university who has equipment and suggest, suggest a project or approach a, a friendly radiographer or member of staff at a hospital to say, I'd like to do this. And more uh, nine times out of ten, they want to have a bit of enrichment in their life. They, they want a bit of variety and they'll probably be very interested and want to do it. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. I was wondering about that too. Like anybody hears this over in the UK and just starts sending you things like you need to set up a consultancy business, <laughs> start charging for it. And I don't know what the cost is of doing that kind of thing. Uh, but my love of it is too strong for that at the moment. I, I just, I just enjoy <laughs> discovering, uh, researching and sharing with the world. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, I did look up the cost of your course in U.S. dollars for our U.S. audience. It's about $69, $70, so that's still not very bad at all. Uh, a lot of courses are, I mean, two, three, four times that uh, for the value that you get. So this is really good and would be, I mean, super fun to just learn something that you may not, to be honest, use very much. Or in CRM archaeology, if you're a CRM archaeologist in the United States, you may not even have the ability to do that, but having that as one more thing in your tool bag, your mental tool bag is, Hey, we found this. I heard about this kind of thing. It might be good. Let's try to find somebody to take a look at this. And, uh, it might, it might come in handy, which is why we do this podcast. So, all right. Well, everybody go check out the links in the show notes. Paul, do you got anything else to wrap this up? Uh, not to wrap it up, just to complicate things. Um, <laughs> it would be interesting if that course was available for uh, for RPA credit in the US, same way that oh, yeah. uh, it's eligible for charter credit in the UK. It's not currently, but uh, it might not be a heavy lift if it's been approved in, uh, in the UK in order to get something comparable in the US. And then it becomes extra added value that makes that $70 US, uh, that stretches it pretty far. It makes it a very good deal. Yeah, that's something I definitely will look into. Yeah. And policies may have changed on this. I've looked into that in the past and they typically require somebody involved with the with the educational resource to be an RPA. But I don't know mm-hmm. if that extends to international, uh, international courses or something like that, where maybe it wouldn't make sense for them to be part of like a US-based, you know, register like this. So who knows? Definitely look into it because that would be, Paul's totally right. There's nothing like that over here that I'm aware of. And that would be a great addition to some of the resources they have on offer. Okay. Well, again, thanks a lot, James. And we look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. And I hope everybody goes and signs up for your course right now. And if not, you're going to hear about it probably a few more times over the next six months as we help him uh, advertise and get the word out for that. So, and if you happen to be with the RPA, get in touch with James and, and let's see about getting some RPA credit for that because the more the merrier on that stuff. So again, thanks a lot, Paul. And thanks a lot, James. And thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.